Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Chris Rodriguez. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. Welcome to another edition of Inside Music Cast. Our guest is one of the hardest working musicians and singers today. For over a decade, you've heard him adding his rich background vocals to studio and live performances for artists such as Shania Twain, Kenny Loggins, Michael McDonald, Billy Joel, Winona, and many others. But don't underestimate his vocal versatility. He's just finished laying down some backing vocals for Megadeth's latest project and is about to begin one sweet gig with country megastar Keith Urban that'll take him well into next year. Being Nashville's most sought-after backing vocalist only confirms this man's talent. Oh, and did I say that he's an incredible guitarist? Well, he's an incredible guitarist. Our guest today is none other than Chris Rodriguez. Chris, welcome to Inside Music Cast. Thank you very much. Good to be with you guys. All right. Hey, Chris, uh, when I uh, first connected with you a few weeks back, uh, you were preparing to fly to Southern Cal to meet up with Keith Urban to do, a, a, I believe it was a private party you mentioned to me. And uh, obviously this wasn't your normal private party. It was a gig for a medium mogul Rupert Murdoch, man. Uh, heavy duty, you know? Pretty heavy duty. How was that gig? I mean, it was, uh, it's, you know, this is not only the owner of, like, Fox Television and the New York Post. Uh, was it, uh, uh, how, how was that to play in, in a gig like that? Well, um, I, I think this will really say it all. As <laughs> I looked over across the stage, maybe 10, 20 feet from the stage, on the opposite side of the stage where I was, a uh, clapping and smiling President Clinton was there the whole show. Holy cow. So it was kind of of a room full of luminaries. (laughs) No no pressure, right? (laughs) Yeah, and uh, I guess, you know, it was a birthday party for Rupert, but it was also a, they had a week-long kind of think tank uh-huh. I'm I'm getting the gist that this is what he does every year for his birthday. He kind of hosts this big, <laughs> a big think tank party. <laughs> yeah, like for, you know the uh, deputy prime minister of Israel, uh, Shimon Perez was there. Oh, I mean, it's kind of like that. Bono was there. He wasn't at the party, but yeah. those guys were there that week. That's incredible. Yeah. So. But leads, but see that leads me to my first uh, my, my, a paparazzi question that has really nothing to do with music. And the question was, uh, um, you know, was Mrs. Urban there? <laughs> Mrs. Urban was there. Hey, she was, huh? Oh, not uh, bad. I didn't get to say hi to her, but I, I <laughs> uh, distinctly remember seeing her. I don't know within fifteen feet of the president. At one point, I just want to know if, if Paris Hilton was there. <laughs> of course, she was there. <laughs> Paris, Paris Hilton was not there. I don't think. But um, I hear she's celibate now. So. Yeah, that's right. If <laughs> I was a celibacy, been. exactly. <laughs> well, hey, Chris, let's dive into music here. The first time it. I had a chance to hear you perform was uh, during a Kenny Loggins concert back in 1993. And of course, at the time we were there for Kenny, but. I remember my wife and I leaving the venue, and we were just blown away. We were just so impressed with your voice and, and your guitar work. Uh, you kind of, in our hearts, you kind of stole the show in some senses. But before the concert started, we both wondered who and how those Michael mm. McDonald parts were going to be handled. <laughs> and you, you handled them with as much soul and passion as Michael himself. And 
I just wanted to know what was your experience like uh, performing with Kenny, and, and, and uh, I guess you're still working with him, right? To this day. Yeah. Man, Kenny is just one of the most incredible artists ever. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm thinking he's 58 years old now, and oh. I don't think he's ever sounded better. Wow, yeah. At this age, he's just a consummate professional. He's got a... Um, I think of all the singer-songwriters of the 70s, you know, that emerged from that era, you know, the era that gave us James Taylor, Carol King, Jackson Brown, those guys. Right. Yeah. Kenny was the guy that sort of emerged to me out of that batch of people as mm-hmm. a singer-singer, too. You know, like like he could do his own sort of mix of California country rock, but later, you know, he morphed into all kinds of different styles. Mm-hmm. and. I guess the point I'm trying to get across is as a vocalist, he could sit there with Aretha Franklin or Celine Dion or uh, next to Mariah Carey or somebody, you know, that you go, wow, these people are singer-singers. Kenny was the one guy from the singer-songwriter generation that sort of, yes, he had a catalog of great songs and he could write and perform his own music, but as a vocalist, Mm -hmm. he sort of, to me, he just, James Taylor is a great singer, um, Jackson Brown, those guys, but Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't see him going toe to toe with Aretha. I think Kenny could. Yeah. You know what I mean? Wow, that's interesting. He could sit there with Al Green and go, "All right, let's go for it." That's yeah. a pretty heavy compliment, and I, and I would agree. I think he's amazing. I've seen him several times, you know, solo, and I've seen him. Uh, I saw him last year uh, with with Messina, and and it's just every time you see him, he's just a solid, solid performer. He's great every night. Yeah. I mean, even when he's tired and he's got the flu or whatever, for some reason when the light, you know. When the curtain goes down and the lights go on, he knows how to turn it on. There's, there's just some kind of inner thing in him where he can sort of break through any tiredness or you know flu or fatigue. Or it's very inspiring for mm-hmm. me, you know. Right. Well, going back to that that period back in the early '90s when Kenny was on his leap of faith tour, he he seemed to be going through some major changes in his life. And at that time, he had met his wife Julia, and he was proclaiming his love through. Many of the songs on that album, as well as through the book that he wrote, and his his spirituality also played a really important role in his songs and in mm-hmm. his book at that time. And you too are, I know, are, are a very spiritual individual. And I'm curious to know how you originally connected with Kenny, and yeah. if you were involved mm-hmm. at all in any of the lyrical content on that album. I wasn't. I actually came in uh, to the picture about halfway through the Leap of Faith tour. Mm-hmm. Um, Guy Thomas had been playing with Kenny for years and had left the group, and um, at the time, I had just gotten signed to Sony Music Publishing. Uh, I lived in Nashville, but I got signed out of the L.A. office, and I was there to meet up with my publishers, and they and as a new songwriter, they took me up to Columbia Records, which was a flight above, you know, in the Sony complex in Santa Monica, sure. publishing, Columbia, Epic, they're all in one building. Right. And so they took me to meet Bobby Columbia, who was then Kenny's A&R guy. I don't think my publishers had any intention of hooking me up with Bobby Columbia to hook me up with Kenny. They were just like, hey, Bobby, this is one of our new writers. We think you should hear him and meet him. So they took me to meet him. He listened to my, um, I had a, you know, a dat tape at the time full of songs, and he loved the songs and he loved the guitar playing. He goes, you know, one of my artists is... Uh, Kenny Loggins, mm-hmm. and he needs a guitar player. Would you be interested? And um, I was also on a world tour with Amy Grant. At oh, wow. The time. So I was like, 
oh my gosh, yeah, I'm interested. I, yeah. Absolutely. And I got a call from his management, um, and I couldn't start right away because I had to honor my commitments to Amy. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, they flew me in uh, December of 91. They flew me out to L.A. I got in a car and drove up to his house in uh, Santa Barbara and just met w- with him. Mm-hmm. And we hit it right off. And we just got two guitars out, and he had me sing above him and below him, and he was like, oh, man, this is killer. You got the falsetto and the chemi- all the, the parts. The chemistry was there, huh? Yeah, and the next day we flew to Park City, Utah, where I did my first show with the band, no rehearsal. Wow. <laughs> no, re- uh, no rehearsal? with sound check. No rehearsal? No rehearsal. Oh. Um, of course, I, you know, I'd gotten an ISO tape weeks before, which was basically... Mm-hmm. Kenny and the band on the left, all the guitar parts and vocals that I needed to sing on the right. So right. I was able to, you know, have those parts isolated. Mm-hmm. And I learned the entire show that way. Wow. It was a very stressful three days. Oh, I, I spent three days on the floor <laughs> of my music room. Oh, I bet. Uh, doing homework, writing charts. And, and so I flew out to his house and um, we hooked up. And then, and then the very next day, flew to Park City to do a private show for a room full of celebrities I didn't know who it was going to be <laughs> the cur- you know so here's my first gig with Kenny right uh-huh. curtain goes up I I've basically had just a sound check with the band I look out <laughs> in the crowd and it's like um you know Bernard what's his name from CNN news um, John Shaw. Oates from Hall and Oates yeah. Oh, yeah. and he's like every other face was like somebody I knew <laughs> wow which basically made me even more scared. <laughs> First gig, man. But, uh, you know, to this day, even subs that come in for the guys that regularly play with Kenny, mm-hmm. man, you, you basically have a sound check to get it together. Really, huh? Yeah. But it's, it's kind of cool. I mean, yeah. we also rehearse properly, like, at Third Encore in Burbank for days at a time. But And let me tell you, it's, it's not a three-chord rock gig. You, you can't. Yeah. You know, you got, yeah. there's a lot of chord changes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of vocal parts. Like we do this song called If You Believe. And right, right. On the Leap of Faith record, I believe it was Take Six that did all the intro vocals. Well, we do that live every night. And certainly you can't, you know, you got to know the notes. Are, are you still doing, uh, I think on a, on a couple of recordings, uh, we've seen you uh, perform on the Leap of Faith uh, song, uh, doing your solo with your guitar lick and your scat. Yeah, you know? yeah. That is so, uh, it, it's and it's beautiful. Thank you. We we still do it uh, almost all the time now. Yeah. And basically, I got my cues from Hiram Bullock, who played on that song on, on the record. Oh, that's right. And Hiram, uh, if you remember, was the original guitarist in the David Letterman band. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And a great, great musician. Sure. And, uh, so he did a wonderful solo, and I, I think I steal one or two licks from that solo verbatim and then build build upon it well you build it really nicely it's a successful solo man it's 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 solid you know it's really neat it's been a lot of you know kenny's been very good about um you know he's very secure in himself as an artist and if he likes what his side men do Mm -hmm. he absolutely is generous with the spotlight just you know yeah throws it over and you know just just go go for it huh yeah and and you know keith urban the same way is he really like the very best are are so secure in their you know can you, their uh, stardom, you know? can you relate to the the chemistry between uh, Keith and uh, and Kenny? Obviously, you work with Kenny for for many more years, but um, are you close to having that kind of a rapport with Keith? 
getting there, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. It's only a little more difficult now because Keith Starr is so on the rise that uh-huh. his time is so limited yeah. with us because literally ev- almost every minute of his day is spoken for. Yeah. Wow. So we haven't had the hang time, per se, that I've had with Kenny. Uh-huh. But I'm sure it's coming, you know. it's We're getting ready to have a very busy 2007, so we'll be in every town across the globe all year long next year, so. We'll talk a little bit more about that. I, I want to talk, tell me a little bit about, uh, you grew up in a, a Bronx, you're a Bronx guy, and uh, you spent the better part of your childhood there before you moved to Miami. That's right. And, and I read somewhere that uh, you knew really, even as early as first grade, as to that you wanted to, you know, dedicate your uh, career to music, and I just simply find it amazingly that just instinctively you knew that at such a young age, that that's what you were going to do, and it followed with a very successful career. I mean, it's... Uh, were any of your family members musically inclined? Where did you where did you grab that from? Well, they were not professional musicians. Um, in fact, my father worked in retail his whole life. Hmm. But my mom and my dad were Puerto Ricans that had migrated to the city in the 40s and 50s. You know, mm-hmm. it's sort of mm-hmm. the West Side Story, sure, Puerto sure, Ricans. Sure. And uh, so he grew up in the uh, doo-wop age mm-hmm. and was in a sort of a doo-wop quartet for a couple of years when he was a teenager. Right. But um, they were just musical, and they always had music around the house. And the initial thing that got me going was they always had soundtracks to, like, Broadway plays. So mm-hmm. originally, I, I had my sights set on being, like, Robert Goulet. You know, like, when I was five <laughs> years old, I wanted to uh, I wanted to sing Camelot. What else did we have? We had, you know, Fiddler on the Roof and yeah. Kiss Me Kate and West Side Story and things like that, sure. you know. So I kind of felt like even then, and I was five and singing at my family parties, and they would give me money, you know. And I was like, man, all I got to do is sing, and I'm getting money. Sweet gig, man. <laughs> this is good. Get, get rich off my family. That's better, yeah. than, that's better than mowing the lawn or something. <laughs> but Christmas Day, 1967, my parents gave me Sgt. Pepper, and that just, wow. oh my that God. just cemented it. After that, I was... Probably the biggest Anglophile Puerto Rican in New York. (laughs) My sights were set on London, England. And, you know, it was all about the Beatles and the Who and the Kinks and uh, the Yardbirds. and, and, And then, you know, when I got to Miami, the fascination with English rock continued, you know, with Bowie and and the Queen and all Mm -hmm. those bands. But, you know, New York was a great place. Mm-hmm. Um, I started playing guitar when I was 10. I had maybe half a year's worth of lessons. Yeah. And, um, and it wasn't until I got to Miami, though, when I was almost 14. Mm-hmm. The day I started school there, I, I joined a band. Did you really? And then, <laughs> and really, at that point, it was absolutely, there, there's no plan B for me. I'm, this is what I'm going to do. And we're not talking about uh, marching band, right? No. (laughs) Just to make it clear for us. This was a three-piece band without a bass player. And the drummer and the other guitar player and I cut lawns for three months, and we raised enough money to buy me a PV Musician amp, which is like like a 412 kind of big amp. Yeah. (laughs) We cut lawns for three months just to get me 
<laughs> Needless to say, we don't have to identify the leader of the band. Yeah, and, then, and, then, and I wasn't the leader. The drummer was the leader. Really? But he was the one like, man, we got to get you an amp because that little Univox is, is not going to cut it. You know? It kind of all snowballed from there. I mean, we just cut lawns and played parties and made money. And, you know, within by the end of eighth grade, we had a PA system. You know, it was it was like one of these things that just sort of, you know, God is up there, you know, touching your lives as kids and providing all this stuff for you, you know, it's just like, but my dad was a very, um, you know, as you think, so it shall be kind of guy, you know, so he drummed that into me. So it's, uh, it doesn't surprise me now that I get to do what I do because it's it's all I envisioned for myself when I was as young as first grade, you know. That's fantastic. Well, you you studied music at Belmont College, right? Yeah. I guess and, and that's what I think a lot of people would call the, the Nashville music scene college because so many great talent came out of that school. <laughs> and, it was a great school. And one of your first major gigs after college was going on the road with Michael W. Smith. And, you know, what a fantastic opportunity that must have been right out of school. Yeah, really. and can you think back to that time and tell me what you were feeling, you know, anxiety aside – how soon were you able to grasp the rules of the road and get comfortable with playing with one of the biggest names in contemporary yeah. Christian mm-hmm. music? Well, you know, I got comfortable with it real fast because, you know, throughout my last, say, three years of college and mm-hmm. then the year and a half after college was done, you know, between the end of college and the time I met Michael W., mm-hmm. I just played in bar bands. And, you know, we're talking five, six sets a night, six mm-hmm. nights a week, and maybe I made on a good week two hundred fifty bucks a week. Wow! Um, I was burnt out. Yeah, I bet every night, you know, by the two a.m., I lost my voice, and the next night, you know, the power of youth, I had enough voice to get through the next <laughs> night. You yeah. know, but it was like, you know, this has got to stop. I, I'm, I'm killing my throat here. You know, and I started taking some vocal lessons to sort of help me combat, you know, the amount of abuse I was putting my throat through, mm-hmm. but boom, man, I got the Michael gig through Dan Huff, who was also a Belmont College guy, Oh yeah, and Dan, um, who's been pretty instrumental in recommending me to a bunch of key things that I've gotten in my career, mm-hmm. uh, Michael was in need of a guitar player, he said, man, you got any recommendations, you should call Chris Rodriguez, so... Uh, I met Michael and we became instant buds. I mean, like, he he's also like a Kenny Loggins in terms of, like, we just became friends, like, yeah. instantly, you know. Mm-hmm. I just loved his music. I knew nothing about him. I knew a little bit about Amy Grant, and that's all I knew about Christian right. music. Exactly. So I go meet Michael at his house, and I'm listening to all these tunes, and he starts playing keyboards, and I'm like, man, this guy's like harmonically one of the most sophisticated musicians I've ever met. Yeah. And then we went on the road and, you know, talk about making 200 bucks a week. I was making 200 bucks a night. There you go. <laughs> so I got used to it quick. Yeah, no kidding. You know, at that point I was like, man, <laughs> this is a bump up. Yeah. And it was around this time that, I mean, really with Michael W that, that actually you, you became a Christian. I mean, was, was Michael a driving force and a guiding force in this whole thing, uh, Chris? The guiding force. Really, but he he did it. It was so light-handed. You know, there was no sinner's prayer. There was no none of that. I mean, they just simply lived lived their lives. It's a life issue, huh? They just lived it. You know? Yeah. Right. So it was. 
it was the sweetest way yeah. to enter, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure. In 1999, you delivered your first uh, and, and and your solo, your first and solo project, The Beggar's Paradise. And although it was by no means a let's call it a, a new artist type of records, there were a lot of people anticipating this record. Do you agree with that? Well, I think you know the people that are you know fans of music mm-hmm. and session people, and yeah. you know, the, the people that read all the trivia and the liner notes. Yeah, like us geeks over here. <laughs> yeah, they, they like were us. into it, and. Yeah. Um, Life threw me a big curveball right, not too long after that mm-hmm. record came out, and I couldn't really go out and support the record and work it. Yeah. About two years later, they hired me as an A&R man, and I did three years as vice president of A&R at Word. So I kind of feel like that uh, suit gig that I ended up getting was really kind of a, a result of the respect that I kind of got from mm-hmm. having done that record. Interesting. And also... As a session guy, I, I ended up having already had played and sung on a bunch of the artists that were on Word, so I had relationships with a lot of people there already. I had to learn the A&R thing because I'd never worked in a building before, but the relationships were already set up. And so that that was kind of cool, and I think the Beggar's Paradise record, it, it was a shortcut to getting to the A&R thing. Now, I understand that the, the Beggar's Paradise project was... It was comprised of songs that you started to work on several years in advance of, of its release. And when you first started writing these songs, you weren't able to finish, but you somehow managed to get back to these songs years later and complete the album. What happened in your initial attempt to write these songs that delayed your progress? Mm-hmm. And had these songs been completed on your initial attempt, do you feel that the content would have been um, much different than the eventual outcome? Well, actually, uh, the songs were, with the exception of maybe a couple songs that have uh-huh. been sitting around for years, most of those songs came together within a year of me recording them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think lyrically they were focused and sort of compressed into a, a time period there. Yeah. See, the record came out in 99. Right. Probably the majority of the songs were written after 97 and in 98. Oh, okay. And um, two songs, which the one, one that became a single, which was called This Time Around, mm-hmm. and a song came, called Saved, were written and recorded after the record was done. Like, I recorded the record, delivered it, and um, the radio people at the record company went, well, we like the record, but we're shy of having singles for radio. Mm-hmm. Can you go in and, uh, you know, write some more? Yeah. It's the classic, go write us some more. <laughs> yeah, I really like uh, Saved. I listened to, you know, I've listened to Beggar's Paradise a couple of times, and, and uh, Saved was a great, great track. Yeah. Thank you. Really nice chord progressions. That yeah. song and this time around, uh, which ended up being singles, were the last editions to the record. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, um, really, the record does have sort of a compressed time period of where it was where it was written. Well, the one that pops out to me is one called Your Love, and, and that had, uh, although the, the, the guitar riffs are sort of a little on, on the back side behind, and you really tore it up on that, man. If you, if you, to, you. to play off, you know, if you notice the guitar work on that, I think that's, uh, that's, that's a pretty hot cut, you know? That's the best, um, oh, it's the best guitar moment. You know, yeah, that's I think the one so. guitar moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of had to tone it down to get on radio. By 99, it was sort of like guitar solos are out. <laughs> exactly. You know, since, since it was like, right. well, I had that one song, Your Love, to sort of go, hey, everybody, I play guitar. Sure. <laughs> you know? Um, but I've always loved Hendrix. So yeah. Yeah. that was sort of me, you yeah. know, a tip of the hat to the Beatles, you know, some chords, some moves there. That there's Some of the descending moves are, you know, remind me of, Beatle stuff or Brian Wilson-y kind of things, but I, I was trying to get the guitar, the muscle, 
in the guitar to, you know, evoke, you know, a Jimmy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Hendrixian and, uh, thing. You know, recently we, uh, I don't know if you know, but uh, we were able to talk with Lee Sklar. And you've, you've actually worked with Lee Sklar before, right? Like, not very long ago. Yeah. A couple times now. Yeah. Well, um, in in the course of our interview with him, he he mentioned that you know technology and everything it's sort of changed the way that the old the old ways of recording have changed and uh, and these days you can work you know in Nashville laying down tracks and you're in L A and then somebody's in in New York and it, somehow it all comes together right yeah um, but uh, you know recently you finished laying down some backing uh, vocals for uh, for Megadeth's new album was that for United Abominations. That's it. That's Is the it? title of the record, United Abomination. Now, when you worked on this, I mean, I, I hear that the drum tracks and the rest of the album were actually recorded in England. I mean, did you the, were the tracks already done? Uh, tracks were already done, uh-huh. And, and you jumped um, in on that. How, how, did that, how did that session go? With, uh, and how long have you been working on uh, Megadeth projects? Well, I started working on Megadeth. Uh, Dan Huff did uh, one or two records for them. The first one that I got to be a part of uh, was, I think, a record called Risk. Mm-hmm. It was in the late 90s. Um, Dan did it. And then um, the week after I got let go from my A&R gig, mm-hmm. I got a call to sing on the last record, which was called The System Has Failed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Jeff Balding produced that. Exactly. Jeff, Jeff had been Dan's longtime engineer. Yeah, but he, he'd also uh, engineered... And a producer. Yeah, okay. And and he's producing the new one, United Abominations. And I, yeah. I just got that call, which... Initially, I was supposed to sing on that in L.A. when I was out there working with Kenny. You know, I have uh, in early July of this year, I did, you know, ten, first 10 days of July, I was out with Kenny. Um, and I was going to go sing on Megadeth stuff at night mm-hmm. when I was done with rehearsal, but right. um, Dave Mustaine had not finished writing all the lyrics. So right, right. no lyrics, no lead vocals, no lead vocals, no background. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> but um, I get the call. From Dave, because I'm sort of like his vocal body double, you know. Yeah, right, I, exactly. I can sneer just like him. <laughs> how, how would a sneer like that uh, sound like, uh, Chris? Just for example. Ah, it's mighty Odin! You know? <laughs> I like <laughs> it. Except, you know, a third above. Or... This time, though, we, in the last record, we got, we got into some pretty heavy, heavy stacks, uh, vocal stacks. Really? Um, this time it was just a little more simpler. I think he wanted just to... He wanted it to be a little more real and something that the band could, you know, convincingly pull off mm-hmm. without the help of a lot of, you know, vocals on Pro Tools to play along to kind yeah. of thing. So we got 12 songs done in probably 16, 17 hours of singing, which is, you know, that's moving pretty fast. Yeah. There was one song where I got to do like this whole Freddie Mercury kind of queen <laughs> You know, that was one part where I did do about 20 tracks of vocals. Holy cow. And they'll probably mix it back, but it just sort of creates this big kind of gothic, yeah. you know, vocal arrangement thing. It was sort of to build tension in this section of the song. Mm-hmm. Man, I loved it. I thought his lyrics were great. Yeah, yeah. You know, his whole thing is, it, there's a lot of like world history, conspiracy theory, you know, the Illuminati, you know. Exactly. Yeah. It's all, it's very apocalyptic. It's very apocalyptic. <laughs> and yeah. it seemed very apropos. I mean, it's like the whole time we were singing this on on this project, you know, Hezbollah's doing this, and, oh, yeah. you know, Iran's doing mm-hmm. this, and 
you know, the United Nations is not getting anything done. Yeah. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, it, it beca- the album becomes prophetic, you know. <laughs> it was very prophetic. I was, I was tripping on it, you know. And also, I had not heard the record that I sang on two years ago, right? You mm-hmm. know, I'd mm-hmm. never heard it. And Jeff and I went to lunch, uh, Jeff Balding, the producer, and he had it in his car, and I went, man, is this the last record? He goes, yeah, take it. So <laughs> it's all I listened to for about a week. Right. And uh, I was, you know, I'm not really a heavy metal guy. Um, I, I grew up, you know, in the 70s liking all those bands, but, you know, I was just as enchanted playing, you know, wah-wah disco guitar, you exactly. know, right. as I was playing, you know, Smoke on the Water. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I gotta say, I got a lot of respect for for Dave Mustaine and yeah. the record from two years ago. The drummer was Vinnie Colaiuta, right, yeah. right. And um, you know, Balding was telling me Vinnie, it took him like an hour and a half to chart out every song because it was that complex. You know, the the, the complexity and the execution uh, necessary to make that music sing. Pretty heavy duty. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I you guess. gotta know your stuff. And Vinny, I guess a new band member isn't, isn't Jimmy Lee. Jimmy Lee Slowson. And, and Jimmy Lee played bass. I mean, gee whiz, he was yeah. all over. He was. It was almost like uh, I was gonna. For a while there, people were saying, "Hey, the Megadeth was gonna disband," and all of a sudden, a new band pops up, and I'm like, "You have Jimmy Lee and Vinny," and then, and I'm like, "Man, it's 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 revived again," you know? Yeah, and, and you know, uh, after I got a copy of that record from two years ago, I I went on Amazon.com just to mm-hmm. read reviews, and. Uh, which I expected people to be negative because it's session players and Dave, right? Yeah. But most everybody was like, thank God, Megadeth is back. He's back to doing the the, the speed metal the way it's supposed to be, you know? Mm-hmm. And he did it with two other, you know, session pros. Absolutely, know? yeah. Hey, Chris, you're, you know, you're blessed with an incredible vocal range. And can you talk a little bit about your singing technique? And I'm talking about how you use your voice when you're singing behind a main vocal like Keith Urban or Michael W. Smith, do you sing differently than if you were, you know, singing lead? And what do you try to achieve yeah, vocally? Yeah, that's good. Well, I try to blend, and I try to, you know, obviously they want me in the picture because they like my sound or my individual mm-hmm. sound, but sometimes you've got to be almost invisible, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So if I'm singing behind Keith, I try to basically have at least one of my eyes peripherally on his watching him because mm-hmm. I like to see where he's cutting phrases off the crowd rules Keith you know he yeah. goes with that crowd right. and so sometimes he'll just stop saying yeah. you know and go hang out with the crowd you know and it'd be pretty <laughs> dumb if I'm up there you know singing while he's not so. well that's that's one thing about country uh, audiences they love to sing with the, the star you know <laughs> yeah and so my eyes are always on Keith and and Kenny, you know, mm-hmm. but at least peripherally, I'm I'm watching them, and then, um, you know, there's a time to step out, and then there's a time to like step back and be invisible and be right behind them, right. you know, yeah. where you're where you're sort of melting into their vocal quality, and you're just trying to be their vocal body double, yeah. you know. Well, on that note, you know, when I think of, of groups that have, that are infamous for, like, for their background vocal work, I think of like a little handful of these classic groups like, 
you know, the Bee Gees and their harmonies, the Eagles, Crosby, Sons and Nash, Manhattan Transfer, and and don't laugh at this, Rick. I mean, I'm I'm going <laughs> I'm going to give I'm going to throw in for beautiful background vocals, Richard Carpenter and the Carpenters, okay? Oh man, uh, I'm a huge But my question is, you know, they're, they're also wonderful in their background vocals and 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 the substance that's uh, that they contribute to those to their records, but they're not necessarily the best soloists. I mean, explain that a little bit. How can that happen? I mean, well, you know, it's the power of the song. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's the same thing with with Dylan. You know, nobody's ever going to say, man, what a great singer. But he's a great singer. You know what I mean? You know, these guys have their, their, their singing is their style. It's their idiosyncrasies, their limitations Mm-hmm. Are their assets? Oh, it's their character. You know, it's it's. Uh, yeah. it becomes their character, like a Randy Newman, for example. Yeah, Randy. You know, I, I remember the early days of MTV, thinking, man, these all these English groups, man, they they kind of they don't sing well. You mm-hmm. know, they're you know nobody's ever going to say that David Byrne from the Talking Heads is is Luther Vandross. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? That's but right. he's David Byrne. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine anybody else saying, you know. You might ask yourself. You know. <laughs> I can't imagine a singer-singer doing that, but he does it with such, you know, confidence and yeah. attitude. Oh yeah. To me, the songs always seem to dictate what needs to happen there vocally. You know, there are moments when I'm singing with Kenny, like on Leap of Faith, right before my guitar solo starts. I yeah, go, uh, right. "You've done all a man can do." Yeah. And I'm really singing it out. Uh-huh. You know, that's my spot to step out. So exactly. boom, Chris Rodriguez comes out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when I go back into the chorus and I'm going, Homeward, let you... I'm just trying to be Smokey Robinson, like yeah. the way Smokey did it on the record. You it's know? shifting gears in the middle shifting of the Shifting gears. Yeah, right. And, um, you know, Kenny's very great at, like, being able to go shifting characters in his voice. It's just mm-hmm. like McCartney had... 20 different singing voices. He had the uh, Lady Madonna. You know, he had that covered throat. Exactly. He had the, uh, the the sweet voice of And I Love Her. He had the helter-skelter rock voice. Yeah. He had, you know, Rocky Raccoon was kind of like the, you know, yeah, faux cowboy yeah. country. Mm-hmm. Billy Joel, same deal, man. These guys were um, vocal character. Yeah. You know, they were like the Robin Williams of vocals. They could just <laughs> yeah. do characterization. Instead of a character actor, you have a character singer, you know, these guys. Yeah, you're right. And playing top 40 for the amount of years that I did, like when I was in college, mm-hmm. I had to be Sting on one song. <laughs> I had to be Steve Perry on the next and you pulled I had up, to be and you Michael pulled... Jackson on the third song. You know, it was like, <laughs> it was a great education in oh, yeah. shifting. Yeah. And, and so, uh, years after that, I started doing a lot of uh, sound-alikes. Like, you know, these K-Tel Presents kind of records. <laughs> and and it was, you know, they only paid 100, 150 bucks a song, but yeah. it was a great um, exercise in just learning how to copy. And a little lesson in pop history, too, huh? <laughs> yeah, and, and also when you're doing these sound-alikes, you get inside the song and you really know why the song was a hit, you know? Mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. You know, wow, I've listened to this a thousand times. I've really never realized that the vocal does this. and. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all in these little minute details that the magic happens, it seems. Hey, Chris, you know, we know that singing almost every night can take so much out of you. In fact, I don't know if people actually know how tough singing can be on vocal cords. And I'm curious to know your regimen on how you care for your voice. And do you yeah. have a warm-up ritual before gigs? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. I warm up um, a good hour before the gig starts. I start 
warming up. And actually, to tell you the truth, I warm up before even sound check because you can blow your voice out at sound check. Mm-hmm. So, like, for instance, I'm leaving for sound check in 25 minutes. Man, on the way there in the car, I'll be, you know, I'll be already mm-hmm. humming and mm-hmm. soft scales. And, and then about an hour before the show, I just get into a corner. Usually I, I, I like to go face the wall sing right into the corner hmm, interesting. so I can hear myself Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'll just do scales and uh, Keith was real cool he would let Jerry Flowers and I sing an Aerosmith song he would take like this four minute break right in the middle of the show and split no kidding. Dan would do this Aerosmith <laughs> song uh, called What It Takes uh-huh. well um, it, it takes a lot to sing that song <laughs> as you can imagine it takes a lot to be Steve Tyler okay. and who's one of the most he, he's the best vocalist I've ever seen live. Right. Yeah. He's, really? he's the best. Wow. He, he just, at least the nights I've seen him, he's just perfect. Yeah, that's neat. And he sings high, and I know that boy's <laughs> been vocally trained. We just have one last question for you, Chris. You bet. We'd like to ask all of our guests this, and, and what's on your iPod these days? What kind of music does Chris Rodriguez like to yeah. listen to? What do you have on there? Man, I've got everything. <laughs> I've got some, like, live Pat Metheny, um, oh, yeah. where he's, like, at a club playing songs from Bright Size Live, which was his first record from like, you know, 28 years mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. Um, I'm listening to that. Uh, I got, uh, I listen to a lot of English bands, so, you know, I've got Aqualung, Keen, um, Coldplay, um, early Bowie, because <laughs> I love Mick Ronson on guitar. Uh-huh. I did some sessions about a month ago with a great guitar player in Nashville. He's kind of like the guy, Tom Bukovac. Wow. And um, he's a complete prog rock freak, mm-hmm. like Genesis yeah. early records with Peter Gabriel. And he turned me on all these records, like um, there's this Genesis record called um, Nursery Crime. It was oh, yeah. the first record with Phil Collins mm-hmm. on drums. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. Really? That's a great album. It sounds album. like a million bucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like it was recorded yesterday. Oh, I know. Yeah. Um, Switchfoot. Gretchen Wilson, Montgomery Gentry, Brian Adams, Marvin Gaye, The Tubes, Dwight Yoakam. Keith broke out in the guitars and Cadillacs at Soundcheck yeah. a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. I was like, I am going to buy everything Dwight Yoakam. <laughs> he played the Pete Anderson solo, note for note. Freaked me out. Did he really? Uh, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I love English bands. But you give me some Bakersfield country with some twang and guitar, <laughs> stuff freaks me out. Like I am like no other Puerto Rican. Let me tell you. <laughs> you are not. I am like. Ah, uh, gee whiz! Hey, Chris. Uh, there's a band called Elbow out of England. I love them. Elbow. They're, I'm writing Elbow. that down. Gee Real uh, Peter Gabriel-esque mm-hmm. vocalist in that band. Hey, Chris. Thank you so much for spending some uh, time with us, and uh, we wish you the best, especially on the next leg uh, with Keith Urban. And uh, we just want to thank you for spending some time with us, okay? You bet. Thanks so much. Special thanks to Chris Rodriguez for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. 
Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 